programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artists on Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits and lunch sandwiches. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. For years, we've been warned about the looming danger of overpopulation. People jostling for space on a planet that's busting at the seams, and running out of oil and food and land and everything else. In his new book, however, What to Expect When No One's Expecting, Weekly Standard senior writer Jonathan Lass says that's all bunk. The population bomb never exploded. The study says statistics from around the world make it clear that since the 1970s, we've been facing exactly the opposite problem. People are having too few babies. Population growth has been slowing for two generations. The world's population will peak and then begin shrinking within the next 50 years. In some countries, that's already started. Jonathan Lass says that uh, all this is coming to America, too. In fact, it's already here. Middle-class Americans have their own informal one-child policy these days. And... uh, and uh, alarming, at least to Mr. Last and uh, others, a number of upscale professionals don't even go that far. They have dogs, not kids. In fact, if it weren't for the wave of immigration we experienced over the last 30 years, the United States would be on the verge of shrinking as well. Jonathan Last says America wants to continue to lead the world. We need to have more babies. The book is What to Expect When No One's Expecting, America's Coming Demographic Disaster. Jonathan Last joins me for Access Utah. Welcome to the program. Looks like we uh, need to establish the, the line there. Uh, Mr. Lass, are you there? I am. Good morning, Tom. Okay. Uh, th- thank you for, for joining us. Um, I wonder if you could uh, start for us where you start in the book. Interesting illustration of, of what you see as a problem. Uh, you live in Alexandria, right, Virginia? I did. I, oh, you once did? Upon, once yeah. upon a time, okay. I had a glorious child-free life in Alexandria, and then my kids came along and ruined it for me. <laughs> and someday... When they no longer live with me, I'll forgive them for that. And Alexandria's a lovely city. I, I lived there briefly during oh, an internship. So you, and, so you know exactly yes. what they cost me. Yes. Uh, so uh, you, you talk about Old Town, which is a lovely part of, part of town, and a baby shop that was replaced by a pet shop. Yeah, so, so Old Town Alexandria, for, for any of your listeners who know Washington well, the, the Potomac River, which runs into southern Washington, if you follow that down about three miles from the city, uh, you hit where actually Washington, D.C. was originally founded, uh, which they then sensibly moved it out of Old Town and up into the swamps of what is now really Washington. And uh, and that's where I lived, in this charming little uh, 18th century, 17th century uh, little uh, development town. And it's great. I mean, we had these great organic luxury coffee shops and, you know, little markets and farmer's markets. And when we came home from work, my wife and I, on Friday, uh, we would park our cars and then walk everywhere for the rest of the weekend. You know, we'd walk to our food shopping, walk to entertainment, to restaurants and bars. Uh, and we had behind us this little this little strip center behind this condo that we had right on the river uh, by this wonderful bike path. Uh, we had this great coffee shop, a dry cleaner, uh, a smoothie store, a Russian gourmet market, a really, really nice gastropub. And they had a, a kid's clothing shop there named Tudo Bambini. And uh, Tudo Bambini lasted about a year before it folded up. Nobody <laughs> was buying any clothes there because people in Old Town don't have kids. Uh, they, they have pets. And it was replaced by a pet grooming salon called Harry Situations, which has been so successful that it has now expanded its space even in the face of a massive recession, which has put a lot of people in D.C. out of work. Uh, and, you know, frankly, that's because the people in Old Town can't afford to have kids. It's real expensive to live there. And, you know, goodness knows, when my wife and I had our first kid, uh, we made it for almost a full calendar year in our little our little condo with the kid before we realized that if we had to spend two more weeks there, one of us was gonna, not going to make it out alive. And so we pulled up stakes and headed out to the exurbs, which, uh, which are terrible. And... Uh- you hold up at least Old Town, Alexandria, is sort of a, a microcosm of what's happening in America and in many other areas around the world. Um, it, it, the, the people in Old Town, I guess for various reasons, don't don't have children. Yeah, you know, and the big reasons are that uh, people in Old Town tend to have very, very high levels of education and very high incomes. And when you look at look at fertility levels across America, what you see is that people have fewer babies with the more money they make and with the higher level, their levels of education. Uh, and it did not used to be that way, uh, you know, up, up until about 1750 or so. Uh, 
uh, you know, around the world, the people who are the elites, the people with the most money, the most education, have the most kids. Uh, and those trend lines began reversing in the early 18th century and are now completely flipped basically across the world. Wherever you go, the people who, who have the most money, the most education, have the fewest kids. Hmm. Now, you're, um, you're hard on Paul Ehrlich. Uh, in the book, uh, you know, others are as well. Not hard uh, enough. You, <laughs> you you call his book uh, foolish, um, but uh, don't doesn't anybody who gets into the prediction game uh, set themselves up a bit? You're you're predicting some you know some if if the current trend lines continue, uh, your subtitle America's coming demographic disaster. Use the word disaster. Yeah, I mean. One of the things I hate so much about Paul Ehrlich, I feel bad beating up on him because he's this old guy now, and you know, he's, I understand, you know, he's aged, and you know, we should be respectful of our elders. But when you go back and you look at his writings, uh, you know, from back when he was a younger fellow, he always wrote as if he had just stepped out of a DeLorean from 35 years into the future, you know, and that he was reporting firsthand what was going on, and he would say, you know, this is going to happen. He said, you know, in five years, hundreds of millions of people are going to starve to death, no matter what we do, and what I what I actually do, I think anybody who reads my book will, you know, one of the big complaints about it actually is that I'm always hedging. On like every third page, I'm saying, but, you know, trends reverse themselves all the time, and we don't really know that this will happen. We think that it might, you know, if the trends continue, this could happen. Uh, but that's because the future is uncertain. You know, things don't always continue out to the horizon the way they are, they're moving today. And uh, I, I would think that I'm, I'm actually very careful about that. I, I don't think anywhere in the book I make any, like, real stone-cold predictions except for the fact that, either young workers or Social Security retirees in America, one of those two groups is going to get screwed. Mm. That is a, a real historical prediction that I, I think will probably happen. But as far as, you know, what happens in terms of population growth and fertility rates and all sorts of other things, nobody knows for sure where we're going to be in 50 years. All we can really do, I think, to be responsible is to look at where we are now, try to understand how we got there, try to really understand the forces at play, and figure out what the different possible futures look like, you know, in in the most likely cases, uh, but always being open to, to, to looking at the data, looking at the evidence, and, and not, like, look at this world as if it's, you know, some religion. That's, that's the thing that really bothers me about Ehrlich. You know, he sort of has all the fanaticism about this stuff of, like, a real religious believer and would constantly say things even, you know, de- devoid of factual basis behind them. But this does get into at least quasi-religious, uh, uh, you know, fervor. Uh, many people don't have children. There's a lot of reasons why people don't have children, but some people have, have a very passionate belief that I shouldn't have uh, children because I want to preserve the earth. I guess, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm always a little skeptical of how many people don't have kids because because of, you know, their, their urge to protect Mother Gaia. Uh, there are plenty of sensible reasons not to have kids. I, I spend about 12 hours out of every day thinking of good reasons not to have kids, and I have three of them. Um, and I, you know, I, I really, this is something else I do in the book. I, you know, I, I say on, you know, like every fifth page in the book, do not construe any of the following as an argument for why you yourself should have kids. Uh, because the truth is, you know, kids are a lot of trouble, they're a lot of hassle, and for people who don't want them, they shouldn't have them. Uh, but the thing is, in America, that's actually not the median experience. We have, you know, a, a sizable I would say a sizable minority, you know, about 9% of Americans don't want to have kids. And I say good for them. You know, I celebrate their choice. But the median experience in America is that people want to have about two and a half kids. And the problem is that we don't get there. Uh, you have, you know, our actual fertility rate is about 1.9 kids. And so, you know, what I say in the book, we ought not to be, like, bashing people who don't want kids. We ought not to be, like, trying to, you know, argue them and convince them that they're bad people and they ought to suck it up and, you know, bite down on a stick and pop one out for, for America. Uh, instead, what we ought to be doing is trying to help people achieve their fertility goals. And I, I don't know, I, I don't think that's particularly radical. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're not advocating, we'll get into this, you you have a full chapter on what not to do and a, another chapter on, on what to do. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about Singapore and some other countries that uh, had some controversial initiatives. Uh, I want to talk, uh, before we get into some of the numbers, very interesting uh, dive into statistics, and you, you do it in a sort of a breezy way to, to help people through this. Um, I could see where, if you're a sort of a part of this trend, and it is a definite trend, people are having more pets than children, that uh, as uh, maybe uh, part of this pet mania, as you call it, uh, you could see a divide. You could say, oh, I'm over here as a pet lover, and, and Mr. Last is over there. You, you, you say that pets become fuzzy, low-maintenance replacements for, for children. 
Um, and I guess as an individual decision, that's you would say that's fine, but uh, on the macro level, uh, we're perhaps heading for some problems. Yeah, I would, I would say owning a pet is like smoking or drinking or doing anything else. You know, it's, it's fine at the individual level if you want to make that just I'm just kidding. I don't really mean to compare dog owners to smokers and alcoholics. Um, no, I would, exactly as you say. The decision not to have kids at the individual level is perfectly fine, but you do have to, like with anything else, like with alcohol consumption or smoking, you do have to look at the macro societal effects of that. And, you know, one of the macro societal effects here in America is that our entitlement system has become totally unsustainable. Uh, you know, we all the fights that we have over Social Security and Medicare are really fights about fertility levels. It's just the people who are doing the fighting about it in Washington can't sort of talk that way. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we have this problem. Uh, but... You know, I would say just objectively, I'm not a pet guy, and so I, you know, I get that, uh, and I, I immediately cop to that, and that's fine. But if you were to take somebody who really loved dogs from 1965 and sort of plop them down in modern America, where dogs can now uh, can now legally have inherited trusts, where they have you know insurance for while they're riding in automobiles, where they have kennels like the kennels we had in Old Town, where each dog has his own house with his own air conditioning unit, his own bed—not a doggy bed, but a person bed, his own television where the dog got report cards every day to hand to his owners when they got back from their vacation in France. Uh, when we had sort of organic doggy bakeries, and you looked at the spending levels on dogs, which are you know, really through the moon, and have continued to increase even in the face of this massive recession we've been in since 2008, I would think that even a dog lover from 1965 would look around at this world and say, really? Is this, is this, is this for real? Mm-hmm. Um, so... If we're looking at the, maybe we talk get into the demographics uh, at this point. There are some countries, uh, European countries, uh, to take uh, the, uh, the most extreme example, um, where the uh, fertility rate is is not at replacement, right? And and so that what, what's the best guess there? That at what point will we start to see problems in places like uh, Japan, European countries? Uh, so Japan is. So Japan is the canary in the coal mine, right? Japan is is the the first the first sort of off the bus on the way towards really low fertility, and because they are a sealed system with no immigration to speak of, they're going to feel all the ill effects first. Uh, in fact, we think they're already feeling them. Uh, the the lost decade that began in the early 1990s for Japan and which continues to today, uh, most of the demographers and economists over there now believe it's not a lost decade. That this is what demographic winter looks like. You wind up with very stagnant economy. You wind up with uh, all sorts of crises about entitlements. You wind up with real social instability uh, and political instability, which is sort of what they're starting to, to see over in Japan right now. You had, God bless them, four weeks before my book came out, their finance minister came out and said it was time for the country's old people to hurry up and die. You can imagine what would happen. <laughs> the American Treasury Secretary said something like that. Uh, but, you know, their, their finance minister did not lose his job, and he, he stayed there because this is, this is a real a real fight they're going to have. They're going to have a generational fight over this stuff. Uh, now, in Europe, it's a little bit different because they do have a little bit of immigration, and uh, they're not as far down the slope as the Japanese are. Uh, but it's pretty bad. There are there are no European countries which have a fertility rate at the replacement level. Uh, and the only ones which are even close uh, are Ireland, which still has a whole bunch of Catholics, uh, and France, which has a whole bunch of immigrants. And, you know, even with, with mass Catholicity and I, I don't even know if that's how you properly say that. I'm Catholic. I should know. Uh, and even with mass immigration from Northern Africa, as they've had in France, uh, they haven't been able to get up to the replacement rate. Uh, so I would say these things bode pretty ill. I mean, Europe, Europe is fated to lose uh, something like 50 percent of its population over the next 70 years, uh, even once you take into account immigration. And so these imbalances in uh, people needing support versus people who are providing that support through taxes, is that the number one problem? <laughs> Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, what I say throughout the book is that I am not one of these people who thinks that we need, everybody needs to have the fertility rate of, of Afghanistan. Uh, you know, for what we really need is a stable age structure for the population. And that's what the fertility rate is really all about. What people don't understand typically is that when your fertility rate goes below the replacement level, which is 2.1, the average woman needs to have 2.1 kids over the course of her lifetime to hold your population stable. Now, what that does is it inverts the age pyramid. So you wind up with more old people than young people. And you stay inverted so long as you're below replacement. Uh, now, once you have an inverted age pyramid, you wind up with all sorts of problems. You know, it makes any sort of entitlement state very, very difficult to sustain, and it also becomes a vicious cycle. 
because you wind up having to tax the young workers more heavily in order to pay for the benefits for older workers. So you wind up with, you know, with this real draconian choice. Do you either, you know, just slash and get rid of the welfare state, which I certainly don't advocate, uh, or do you do you really radically overhaul it so that you're either breaking promises to seniors or really heavily taxing young workers and making it even harder for them to have kids? I think that's pretty tough. And what I sort of state is, is you know, a goal in all of this is that we would like to be is what we would we would like to all be around the replacement level. And if we could be at the replacement level, we would then have a stable age structure and that we could then sort of figure things out and move forward. Uh, and the truth is America is pretty close to that right now. We're at about 1.93. And if the demographics experts and if I thought that 1.93 was sustainable in the long haul, then I would not have written a book because I would say that where we are right now is okay. Um, the problem is that a lot of the indicators suggest that in the long haul and in the future, uh, 1.93 is just a way station, and we're headed further down. Is that including immigration? Or is yeah, that just... that's 1.93 for everybody. For, for everybody, okay. But immigration is helping, isn't it? Hugely. Hugely. If you, if you go back and you run the numbers without the 35, 36 million immigrants we've gotten over the last three decades or so, uh, we already look like Europe. So in that way, immigration has bought us, you know, almost you know, 20 to 40 years worth of extra time to figure out our problems. Uh, but there are a couple problems with immigration when it comes to demographics, and one of which is that we get these uh, largely Hispanic immigrants from uh, Central South America and Mexico who have very high fertility rates. But when they get here, their fertility rates regress to the mean really, really fast. Uh, and so if, if all of our Hispanic immigrants stayed with high fertility, again, we would say, okay, that's good. We can, we can make it with this because these people do all the heavy lifting for us in terms of making babies. But they don't. They start to act like the rest of America really fast. Uh, and the other problem is that historically you don't get immigration from countries who are below the replacement rate. And because fertility decline is a global phenomenon, we have seen you know, from Mexico all the way down south uh, massive declines in fertility over the last 20 years. About a third of those countries are already below the replacement rate. And so we may not get any more immigration from them over the next you know, 20 to 30 years, uh, regardless of what we do here. We're talking with Johnson Last. He is a senior writer with The Weekly Standard. His new book is What to Expect When No One's Expecting. Americans Coming, a Demographic Disaster. I want to pull back. We'll take a brief, uh, brief break shortly, but I want to pull back um, to a global level. Uh, and there are some countries which are well above the replacement rate, right? Yes. Uh, those tend to be less developed countries. Yeah, I mean, not a whole lot of them. So, uh, you know, I would say in in whole, less developed countries tend to have higher fertility rates. But when you look at this stuff, you always have to look at two things, you have two aspects of it. You look at the actual, the absolute number of the fertility rate, but then you look at the rate of their decline. So if you think back to high school calculus, you're looking at the the slope of that curve, the DXDT. And in the developing world, while they tend to have higher fertility rates, they tend to also have steeper rates of fertility decline. Hmm. Uh, and so some estimates, I don't know where you are in this, but the, the world could reach, say, 12 billion uh, people before shrinking, that, that there's, you know, it's, it's continued growing overall before shrinking, uh, and uh, perhaps that's not sustainable. Uh, that's the high variant. Most of the estimates think that it'll be somewhere around 9 to 10 billion, give or take a billion. But again, these these things are all sort of estimates looking 50 years out. And so I think we should take them and use them. Uh, and that's helpful to us, but also not be wedded to them. Because, you, again, you know, things change, trends change. Uh, so yeah, most I would say the UN and most of the people who study this stuff think we're going to peak somewhere around 9 billion or so and then begin shrinking. Most of the questions are, are how far and how fast we shrink after that. So there's still some, you know, overpopulation concerns until we start shrinking. I get I'm not quite sure from who. I mean, there are a couple sort of, you know, flat earth or radical environmentalists who worry about overpopulation. I would say most, most of the people who study this for a living aren't particularly concerned about that. Hmm. Of course, there are a lot of people who, uh, you know, you're... You're saying perhaps without cause, but, but but a lot of people take that as an article of faith, that uh, offer population, and and that's one of the problems we need to solve. Yeah, I, I, again, I guess I, I I understand that there are some people like that. I you know I get emails from them from time to time. Uh, when you look at the science of this and you look at the data, uh, there just isn't a lot of data to support that. I mean, I, are are we up against a break, or do you want to talk about this now? Uh, go ahead and talk about it now. Yes. So you look. 
you look at 1800, right, and 1800 world population is below 1 billion. Average life expectancy is about 33 years. Uh, you go to 2000, world population has increased by 700 percent. We're at about 7 billion people. And, you know, if you believe all the Malthusians, you believe that, you know, population brings doom, uh, well, then life expectancy should decline. But instead, it, it more than doubles. It doubles, uh, more than doubles up to 70 years. Uh, you look at sort of price scarcity, right? In 1900, world population is a little bit less than 2 billion. Uh, again, we more than triple that. We go to 7 billion over the course of the next 100 years. And what happens to prices, you know, of commodities? Uh, it, they actually decline by about 1% a year. Uh, even if you look at per capita income, per capita income all across the world, once you hold a constant for inflation, uh, it more than doubles. So when you look at all the actual indicators in all this, uh, you see that the indicators suggest the opposite of what the overpopulation people tell you we should believe. And there's a whole branch of economic thoughts, uh, economic thought to that's devoted to understanding this stuff. And you look at uh, you look at the stuff from. Uh, Hans Rosling, you look at Julian Simon, or you look at Esther Bozerps, and what they suggest is that the reason you see all this is because uh, people are not like butterflies, right? I mean, the, the population dynamics you see in, uh, you know, in a, a given subset uh, or localized population of insects is not what happens with, with, with uh, humans, because humans have brains, humans have ingenuity, and they have technological advances. And so when you have greater population growth, you wind up with greater technological advances, uh, which, because they are cumulative, wind up conserving all sorts of stuff, uh, like food, like resources, uh, and making life better. We're talking with Jonathan Last, who's a senior writer at the um, Weekly Standard. His book is What to Expect When No One's Expecting, Americans Coming Demographic Disaster. You're welcome to join this conversation. We hope that you will. With a comment or question, uh, agree or disagree with Mr. Last, we'd love to hear your perspective. 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. Jonathan Last says that uh, for years we've been warned about the looming danger of overpopulation, but uh, he says that's all bunk. The population bomb never exploded, and he says the opposite is actually the problem. That's a looming dearth of babies. Underpopulation is going to be a problem, not only in America, but in many other areas of the world. And if America wants to continue to lead the world, we need to have more babies. When we come back, we'll ask Mr. Last why he thinks that this is the trend. He says America and several other nations have an informal one-child policy. And we'll talk about Utah, of course. Utah bucks the trend. And uh, a very interesting sort of side note to Mr. Last has, has seen a correlation between red and blue states and uh, under and overpopulation and, and the trends there. We'll talk about these issues when we come back following the break. Did you know that students retain content from an informational text better than they do when the information is embedded in a story? Did you know that when students are rewarded for reading across a wide range of genres of texts, it has a positive impact on their attitude toward reading? When young children are given a choice of books to receive as a gift, they often favor informational books. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll hear the sensual sounds of bossa nova and samba, both fused with electronica and neo-soul in today's club culture and in its more classical, traditional sound. I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for the best of Brazil, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Logan Regional Hospital, hosting the annual Cash Grand Fondo and Outdoor Expo, including cycling, food, and entertainment, July 12th and 13th. Information available at cashgrandfondo.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. For years, we've been warned about the looming danger of overpopulation. 
But in his new book, What to Expect When No One's Expecting, Weekly Standard senior writer Jonathan Lass says that's all bunk. The population bomb never exploded. He says statistics from around the world make it clear that since the 1970s, we've been facing the exact opposite problem. People are having too few babies. He says that is going to cause some problems in America and in other parts of the world. He says if America wants to continue to lead the world, we need to have more babies. And uh, Jonathan Last is a senior writer at the Weekly Standard. His book is What to Expect When No One's Expecting, America's Coming Demographic Disaster. And you're welcome to join the conversation with your comment or question. We hope that you will. Opening the phone lines at 1-800-826-1495. The number toll-free is 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. We have a post there, and you could comment there. In fact, we have a couple of comments that we'll get to just shortly. We want to bring in Robert in Logan. Robert, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Yes, thank you. I uh, just want to make a quick comment on something uh, your your guest said. He said that the people who are worried about overpopulation uh, are pretty much just flat earthers or environmental radicals. Um, I would just like to contradict that and say there are actually quite a few people who study this problem who are not flat earthers or environmental radicals who are indeed worried about overpopulation from a standpoint of uh, resource uh, consumption. You know, we're over consuming according to the Happy Planet Index, the Index of Sustainable Economic Welfare, Growth Progress Indicator, uh, tells us we're over-consuming at about 140% as it is, and certainly while technological progress can uh, can improve the situation somewhat, to say that it's just radicals and flat earthers that are worried about overpopulation, I think, is, uh, is, is a rather extreme statement in itself and incorrect. M- Mr. Last, your response. I stand by my slander of the radicals and flat. No, I think, look, I, Robert, I understand that. Uh, but, you know, I would say when you look around the objective fact, when you look around what we've been told for, for really 200 years now, going back to the time of Thomas Malthus, the, the problems of overpopulation are always just over the horizon. Uh, and they never quite appeared, even when we're told that they've already started. Uh, you know, 1965, the New Republic ran a cover story saying the famine has already started when Paul Ehrlich wrote his manifesto, which, you know, has only sold about three million more copies than my book has sold. Uh, he said that hundreds of millions of people were going to die in just a couple of years, and that there was nothing that could be done to stop it. Uh, these things never materialize. And instead, when we look at the objective measures, when you look at prices of commodities, when you look at, uh, you know, average GDP per capita, when you look at life expectancy, all those things continue to rise in total contravention of what the overpopulation predictions would, would have us expect. Uh, Robert, uh, I wonder your, your response to that. You're, you're seeing, in your research, you're seeing a different vision. Well, uh, I mean, uh, your speaker's correct in that they haven't materialized uh, in a massively sort of apocalyptic way that had been forecast by some 30 or 40 or 50 years ago, but uh, we are entering a new phase where we've become really uh, a much more globally integrated society, and we are starting to actually bump up against uh, real environmental, ecological limits. Um, unlimited population growth is simply not feasible in a, in a world with with uh, limited finite resources. So to say that it hasn't happened uh, doesn't mean that it's the, the predictions aren't correct, but, you know, in the 1960s, if you hadn't had Norman Borlaug coming along with Dwarf Fleet, uh, hundreds of millions of people dying of famine in, in uh, India could have been a very real possibility. So, you know, we're, we're playing Russian roulette every time we say, well, we'll always find a way out of it at some point in a world with finite resources. Uh, you're not going to. So maybe it hasn't happened yet, but 20 years, 30 years, and people who study this realistically – don't come up with numbers of uh, 11 billion people as a sustainable uh, sustainable number at the levels of of, um, of quality of life that, that we have come to hope for. Thank you, Robert. Appreciate appreciate those points. We'll get a response from Mr. Last and uh, and and then uh, go forward. We really appreciate your call. Yeah, I, I would say to Robert, look, nobody who's calling for unlimited population growth. Uh, certainly not me. And. Yeah, I mean, all this gets to sort of the, this theological question of what the planet's carrying capacity is, and I would suggest that we just don't know. I mean, we could all stipulate that it's not unlimited, right? Yeah, you know, if, if I said, I, we could all probably agree that like 100 trillion people is just too much, but the actual question of, well, what is, what is too much then? Uh, that's very, very complicated. Nobody knows. When Ehrlich was writing back in the 60s, he said that it was 600 million people, that that was it. That was all that the Earth could actually carry. 
Uh, I think that that probably is not true. And then when you look at, if you go around the environmentalist world trying to find out what the research says, the carrying capacity is, the numbers are all over the map. And the reason they're all over the map is because nobody really knows. They're trying to hang a number on something that is probably unknowable. Uh, but that the good news in all this is that we are not headed towards unlimited population growth. I certainly am not asking for unlimited population growth. Uh, you know, the numbers are the numbers. The projections say, again, we're going to top out probably in the vicinity of $9 billion and then begin contracting. Uh, so I'd say to the extent that that environmentalists argue against, you know, well, you know, they're saying we want 50 billion people. That's kind of a straw man. That isn't the world that we think we're headed towards and, and not the world that, uh, that we need to worry about. Now, if you believe the number is more, you know, as, as Robert seems to be indicating, the, the problem number is, is more saying that, you know, the low, low teens or something, billions, uh, you could see how uh, someone with that viewpoint would be a little worried when uh, Jonathan Last comes along and says we don't need to worry as much about that. I guess, except that, you know, to get to that, you need to, to get to worrying about the low teens, you need to be worrying about a world which is way over the, you know, 90% confidence intervals on the population projections for the next 70 years, and which also then believes that fertility rates are all going to suddenly reverse and head in a different direction. Because again, remember, what we're looking at is a high water mark followed by rapid decline. Uh, Look, I understand. You know, people are worried about all sorts of things. People worry about asteroids hitting the Earth too. Uh, but you know, if you have to have a sort of cardinality of worries, and if you know, I would say my own cardinality of worries would be to to worry about the things which look like they are most likely, uh, and which are the near term problems, and that seems to be population contraction, and worrying about what happens in society. You know, what what the sort of the macroeconomic effects, what the macro socio political effects are when you wind up shrinking. Before we leave this, uh, you're not worried about the sort of the Middle road predict- prediction of nine billion, in terms uh, of sustainability. Me, no. mm-hmm. Okay, let's go to our next caller, Bettina in Springdale. Bettina, glad you called to go ahead oh. to our question or comment. Oh yes, I wondered if he'd address um, the situation of war and genocide in overpopulations and the poverty of women and children in overpopulations. Yeah, and that's a that's an excellent point. I was going to raise that one as well, Bettina. Uh, maybe address that one first, Mr. Lasted. That uh, I think that, that it is a good point that um, as you develop in society, um, women gain more control over their fertility, and that tends to reduce fertility. But isn't that a good thing that women have more control? Yeah, I, like I said, people should not have more kids than they want to have. Goodness knows, I. Uh... I say this sort of over and over in the book. Uh, you know, the, the idea here isn't to beat people up and to tell them that they should be having kids whether or not they want to. Uh, but, you know, to, to the same extent, you then sort of wonder, well, what's the point of society if, you know, if we all sort of advance and become so enlightened that, that we then decide not to manufacture enough enough people to inherit the society we've built. I actually quite like Western civilization. I really like liberalism. I think it's a very fine system. Uh, my sort of hero, who is, I guess, my sort of liberal doppelganger, uh, is this guy named Phil Longman from the New America Foundation. Brilliant, brilliant writer, demographer. He wrote easily the best book on all this stuff, much better than mine. It's called The Empty Cradle. Uh, and what he's written about quite a lot is about how the difference in fertility rates between orthodox religious believers and sort of secular moderns suggest that we're heading towards a much more fundamentalist planet. Uh, because what Phil points out is that populations are not, con- I'm sorry, fertility rates are not constant across populations. And so there's always going to be some small subgroup that breeds and that those people will literally inherit the earth. Uh, and what Phil, as a nice progressive, uh, worries about is that it means, you know, many fewer NPR listeners in the future and lots more people who are, uh, to his mind, quite illiberal. Uh, and I would say that I, that worries me, too. I like NPR listeners. I would like them to be more of them in the future. I think the future will be a better place if we have more people who support NPR. Yeah, uh, we appreciate that uh, plug. Uh, Bettina, uh, remind us, uh, you, you were talking about war and genocide? Yeah, I asked him if um, that seems to be a statistic in overpopulation areas making, I mean, our world has more population than ever, right? And our wars are bigger and better in the 20th century. I don't know if they're bigger or better. I, I think actually wars seem to be smaller now. We, we wind up with these sort of savage small wars rather than the big giant wars we used to have. You know, one of the things that is interesting in all this, uh, is this is actually sort of a, you know, a hidden benefit of low population, uh, low fertility, is that um, we wind up seeing that the lower the median age of a country, the more war-prone it is. Uh, there's a very, very smart German demographer, Gunnar Heinzon, who's done a lot of research on what he calls the youth bulge. And so if 
if you have a large proportion of your population that are men between the ages of like 15 and 30, and uh, I forget the exact proportion that he points to, I think it's about 35%, you wind up being much more prone towards conflict, uh, particularly civil conflict. And as we wind up aging, because this is going to happen across the world, right, because of our low fertility rates, we're going to wind up having much, much higher median ages. Uh, you could see, hopefully, that we become a little bit more pacific because older people are smarter and don't go to war as often. Can I have one more question? Yes, Who go wants ahead. more population? Is it the consumerism and the economic days of the world? I'm sorry, could you ask that question again, Bettina? I said, who wants a larger population and more fertility? Is it consumerism and uh, uh, economic impetus in the world? Uh, I don't know. I, you know, I... I I actually think, if anything, the sort of the free market mitigates against that stuff. I, one of the one of these sort of big scale drivers in sort of tamping down fertility, I suggest, is, is simple capitalism, uh, because as we become more consumerist, we wind up devoting our resources to things and not to people. Uh, and I I think that that's I'm a bad conservative in, the, in that I'm I'm very skeptical of free markets and I'm not overly enamored with capitalism. Mm. Thanks, Bettina. Appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. Appreciate it. Um, uh, we have as our guest for the hour, Jonathan Last. He's a senior writer at the Weekly Standard. His book is What to Expect When No One's Expecting, America's Coming Demographic Disaster. You're welcome to respond to the program, whether you agree or disagree with Mr. Last. We'd appreciate your comments, your question, and uh, you can join us at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, toll free from wherever you're listening. You can also join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page, and you can join us by email at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We have a couple of comments on our Facebook page. Uh, Joseph Anderson uh, puts a link to the Logan Library of uh, Jonathan Last's book, so you can uh, you can get that at the Logan Library. And Frank Erickson um, uh, 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 posed the question this way. Uh, that if America wants to continue to lead the world, we need to have more babies. Uh, Jonathan Last's assertion, and I say, do you agree or disagree, and why? And here is Frank Erickson's response, not Utah's problem. That's certainly the case. Utah <laughs> leads leads the nation. You you refer to Utah several times in your book. I do. You are a shining light to all of us. Uh, Utah's fertility rate is about 26 a sense of scale, the lowest fertility state in America is Vermont. They're at about 1.67. And this is a sort of something I like to point out to people because I don't think people really appreciate the cultural differences between the states here in America. The, the percentage difference in fertility between Utah and Vermont is bigger than the percentage difference in fertility between the highest fertility country in Europe and the lowest fertility country in Europe, Ireland and Lithuania. So if you think about how different Ireland and Lithuania are from one another culturally, uh, I would say that that is pretty close to the difference between Utah and Vermont. And you you noticed an interesting fact. You, you, you know, you don't claim causation here, but uh, that if you take the top 10 red states, top 10 blue states, with I think only one exception in, in those, uh, matches up to the highest fertility rate, lowest fertility rate. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. I have to go back to my own book and look at that. Uh, and you see a lot of this. Again, this isn't this is correlation, not causation. And uh, but it's interesting because one of the things I sort of explore and try to you know play with in the book is we're trying to understand where it is that we are now and what's going on. This fertility stuff has all sorts of real world consequences, and one of them is in our politics. You know, and you see it. You see it in how our states vote fertility-wise. You see it even down at the county level. Uh, a couple of very, very smart uh, demographers, Ron Lasega and Lisa Neidart, have done an extensive study at the county level. And what they find are that when you look at all of the indicators, uh, aging of first marriage, uh, divorce rate, abortion rate, and fertility rate, and sort of meld them together into an amalgamated figure that they call the second demographic transition, and I won't bore you with the details of that. But that it winds up being that the places with later marriage uh, higher average age of first birth and lower fertility overall wind up being overwhelmingly democratic, uh, down to the county level. And the places with lower age of first birth, low, you know, earlier uh, marriage age and higher fertility level wind up being overwhelmingly Republican, even down to the county level. So do you think that this is uh, going to bode well for the Republican Party? 
Uh, I think it could, but the Republican Party is so stupid. I mean, you really. <laughs> I'm always, I'm always a little bit uh, skeptical about saying that anything will wind up benefiting the Republican Party because they're, uh, they're not so good at this stuff. And mitigating that perhaps is uh, immigration rates, which have tended to, you know, Hispanics have tended to vote Democratic at least recently. Uh, yeah, they have. Although I suspect over time that would change. Um, but again, also. When you look at sort of population projections for Hispanic Americans, I think they're often tempered uh, by not really looking at the fertility rate of Hispanic immigrants over time, which, as, as we said, regresses to the mean pretty quickly. Uh, to be honest, if I, you know, looking at this, if you're on the Democratic side of the aisle, what you would be more interested in, I think, what, what would make you more optimistic about your future, more so than Hispanic immigration, is actually the delay in marriage, uh, because we wind up with many, many more singletons, people who are single and unmarried, because they're marrying later on in life. Uh, and those single Americans vote overwhelmingly Democratic. We're going to take another break. Uh, we'll be back with um, Jonathan Last. He's a senior writer at the Weekly Standard. His book is What to Expect When No One's Expecting America's Coming Demographic Disaster. He says uh, that as uh, population continues to decline, and he, he believes it will in uh, many countries, including America, because people are having uh, fewer babies. In fact, he says there's an informal one-child policy in America and other countries. That's going to have some uh, some ill effects. We'll talk about... Uh, some of those effects, how to counteract those. He has a chapter on what not to do, another chapter on what to do. And uh, we'll talk about culture and religion as well. Both apply here, as we began to talk about with respect to Utah. You can call the program. Uh, join us at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can also join us by email, upraxcess at gmail.com. Or you can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Back with Jonathan Last following the break. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu slash hr. Skin cancer is the most common type of cancer in the United States. The harmful ultraviolet rays from both the sun and indoor tanning sun lamps can cause many other complications besides skin cancer, such as eye problems, a weakened immune system, age spots, wrinkles, and leathery skin. Wear clothing that will protect your skin from the harmful UV rays such as long sleeve shirts and pants. Stay out of the sun if possible between the peak burning hours, which are between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. Find some shade or make your own with a broad-brimmed hat. Use extra caution when at higher altitudes as there is less atmosphere to absorb UV radiation. And lastly, make sure to apply broad-spectrum sunscreen of at least 15 SPF to cover all exposed skin. By following these simple steps, you can still enjoy your time in the sun and protect yourself from overexposure. This is Nicole Jackson for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Jonathan Last, a senior writer with the Weekly Standard, in his new book, What to Expect When No One's Expecting, America's Coming Demographic Disaster, says Americans are having too few babies. In fact, he says uh, the warnings about looming danger of overpopulation are uh, bunk. He calls it, uh, uses that word. And uh, he says that the population bomb never exploded. In fact, we have the opposite problem. And that if America wants to continue to lead the world, we need to have more babies. We're going to get into talking about uh, his suggestions on how to accomplish that and uh, some ideas about what not to do to solve this uh, problem as he sees it as well. Uh, before we do that, we want to bring in our next caller, Lynn in Logan. Lynn, welcome to the program. Glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Thank you. Uh, my name is Lynn, by the way. But in any event, um, two points. One, um, We've spoken not at all about environmental degradation, the sorts of things that um, E.O. Wilson points out in the loss of biological uh, diversity, both of flora and fauna, and the implications of uh, that transformation. And we haven't spoken about the fact that we live in the Anthropocene, in which the environment is being radically reshaped by our energy use. And last but not least, um, the fact is that the Arab Spring is at least in part prompted by the fact that a high population uh, coupled with a large number of young men incapable of finding either work or food for their families um, are, are uh, in a great uh, state of 
uh, unease, and the result um, is a good deal of political turmoil. So the interplay, it seems to me, of political turmoil and environmental shock needs some attention. Thanks, Lynn. Uh, three points there. We'll have Mr. Last uh, respond to those. Uh, first, environmental degradation that the uh, current population, that many would say, is having a bad effect. Yeah, well, you know, again, this is it's just very difficult to look at the, the evidence and and really be too worried about this, because if you go back to 1970 and you look at sort of the, you know, the environment in America in 1970, we had acid rain, our lakes, rivers, and streams were just full of junk. We had really terrible pollution in America, smog, all that. Uh, fast forward to today, 40 years later, we have uh, doubled our population here in America, and yet this is largely, the environment is much, much better and much cleaner, much more sustainable in America since then. Uh, how is that possible? And again, the, the answer is the same. It's technological advance and conservation. Uh, and it also has to do with us getting wealthier, right? To a large extent, environmentalism is a luxury good. Wealthier countries can afford uh, to be very careful about their environment. Uh, and so again, I, I think it's, it's a little too simple to just draw a straight line with you know, environmental degradation and population growth, uh, because it, it isn't quite that simple and it doesn't move in that way. Uh, you know, the, the Arab Spring comment uh, lends about food sources. This is absolutely true. I mean, a huge wheat problem in, uh, in Egypt, which is partly what has caused the unrest down there. But it's important to understand that so while we have hunger in places, and hunger is real, we don't have famines because we have a problem not of food production but of food distribution. Uh, and that's a real problem. It's a problem that needs to be solved. But the, the answer is not that we simply aren't able to grow enough soybeans to keep people all across the world fed. Uh, we can't quite do that. Uh, the problem is corrupt political systems, corrupt political orders that actually – for their own reasons, wind up not feeding their people. Uh, and, and that certainly is what has gone on in Egypt. But, uh, of course, it is an example, you know, whatever the other causes of uh, high population, a population bulge, which you know, can cause some problems. There's, there can be some problems arising from it. From, from which? From, from, you know, high, high population. Uh, sure. Again, you could see theoretical problems, but I would say uh, famine is not one of them. Mm. And just to follow up on Lynn's um, point on environmental uh, degradation and, and uh, outsized energy use, energy energy transfer, um, you're saying America has, uh, you know, solved many of the of our uh, environmental problems, but uh, America and other industrialized nations are outsized users of uh, resources, right, and, and causing outsized um, pollution. And so it's a world problem. Well, it's a world problem. But if you look, actually, we, we've, we are back on our pollution levels here in America to where we were in 1990. We've actually gone backwards, even as our population has increased. Uh, and, you know, I would say, to, I always say to my environmental friends on this stuff, you have to realize, you know, there are multiple considerations here. And so, you know, I have a lot of friends who are concerned about climate change. They, you know, climate change, climate change, climate change. They say the most important thing is global warming. I would say, well, you know, there are two things about that. First of all, we are very nearly outside of the global warming 90 percentile confidence levels. Uh, and we are, you know, we've been flat for about 15 or 16 years right now. Even the economists wrote a big piece about this, you know, rethinking all their assumptions about climate change. But more to the point, you know, so one of the quick fixes, if you really believe that carbon consumption is the most important thing in the world, uh, one of the quick fixes to lowering our carbon consumption is to switch over and build nuclear plants everywhere. Not a lot of environmentalists want to do that, and that's because they have concerns about nuclear power. Well, that's fine. But you have to understand that, again, you're now balancing concerns. You know, so now you have concerns about carbon balanced with concerns about, well, what are the side effects of nuclear power? And I'm simply saying we need to balance one of the concerns we should be balancing here is the, the actual welfare of the population in America and across the world. We just have uh, about the three or four minutes left. I uh, want to get to some of your recommendations. You, you have a whole chapter on what not to do, chapter on what to do. What, what's your uh, brief explanation of, of some of those things that you're recommending? You know, I really don't have, this is another giant failing of the book, is that I don't have any very, really very many smart recommendations. Uh, people have been trying to get people to have, I was governments have been trying to get their people to have babies for a very long time, dating back to the times of ancient Rome. Uh, no one has been particularly successful, not the Romans, uh, not the Nazis, not the Italians, uh, not the French even, you know, and the Scandinavians that we've seen over the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, so what I do in the book is I sort of go through and look at the epidemiology of this, because there was a lot of research that's been done on this and try to understand uh, what 
what proposals have failed and try to understand why they have failed. Now, when it comes to figuring out something that would work, uh, I don't have a lot of bright ideas. I, I try to sort of uh, put forward a framework for thinking about these problems going into the future and suggest that we should be open to a lot of policy experimentation. But I certainly don't. I don't have any silver bullets. I don't have you know a 59-point proposal list in my breast pocket that I tell people, if we just, just do what I tell you to do and everything will be fine. Uh, I think it's going to take a lot, of, a lot of smart thinking, and I hope the book spurs some of that. Now, uh, there are some countries who have famously been trying to tackle this problem, but maybe most famously recently is Singapore, um, and has become the butt of some jokes, uh, you know, with with uh, some of their efforts. Um, but uh, maybe look around the world and some countries that have had success with increasing their birth rates. What what have they done? Well, the, nobody's had really much success increasing their birth rates is the problem. Uh, you know, so the Scandinavian countries in France have gotten their birth rates up a little bit. In Scandinavia, the fertility rate's about 1.7. In France, it's just around 2. Uh, the big things they have there are big, fancy state-run day, state daycare centers. Uh, but the the available evidence suggests that those are not actually all that effective, uh, and that in France particularly, what, what has moved their fertility numbers up is just immigration. Uh, it's because they have very high fertility uh, North African immigrants coming in. And one of the things I try to do, I, mean, I think my book is pretty intellectually honest. Uh, you know, Singapore is a case study that people like me, that is to say, you know, conservatives, particularly social conservatives, Singapore is our Disney, right? I mean, Singapore is, uh, the, the government of Singapore makes Rick Santorum look like a dirty hippie. Uh, but in the face of all of these sort of, you know, very conservative pro-natalist uh, reforms they have in Singapore, they've been worse than, than ineffective. Uh, you know, while they have campaigned against abortion, while they have tried to, you know, hand out giant cash prizes to families and people who have children, uh, which would be great, by the way, with me. I would love to get a giant cash prize. It just as a matter of public policy, it has not been at all effective. And so it's one of the things I, I try to say over and over again in the book is really when we look at demographics, we've got to put our, our own initial inclinations, our own sort of prejudices and assumptions to the side and try to be guided by the data and the actual evidence and research as much as possible. So if there haven't been that many effective governmental measures or, or whatever, is, is this sort of just an academic discussion? We, we sit back and... and uh, Look at what happens, and, and it may, might not be very good. Just watch the world go by. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's probably, the truth is it's possible. I mean, it could be that there's nothing that anybody can do. And that's, that's fine. This is, again, this is the wishy-washiness of my book coming through. Uh, but it's also possible that we just haven't hit upon the right policy innovations yet. And if we think about things in a slightly different manner, then maybe we, we will eventually, right? I mean, one of the old maxims of basketball is that you miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. And, I, you know, I'm open to that. I just think that to the extent we're going to think about policy, we need to be data-driven about it and think about it in, in sensible, numbers-oriented ways, uh, because things will change eventually. Uh, because, as I said, we, we touched, I think, just briefly on this earlier, but uh, fertility rates are not constant across populations. And that you know, here in America and across the world, people who are orthodox religious believers, and in America that really just means people who show up to a worship service once a week. It does not matter what they believe. It doesn't matter if they're Mormon or Unitarian or Catholic or, or Baptist. Uh, or Jewish or Muslim, for that matter. Um, all that matters is their frequency of religious attendance. And those people have a very, very healthy uh, fertility rate here in America, and so they are going to wind up inheriting uh, the country. Hmm. We'll leave it there out of time. Uh, Jonathan Last, senior writer at the Weekly Standard. His book is What to Expect When No One's Expecting, America's Coming Demographic Disaster. This conversation can continue. We'd uh, love to get your further comments on our Facebook page or by email at upraxis at gmail.com. In the meantime... Uh, Mr. Lester, thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. And uh, join us tomorrow for Access Utah and for today for uh, producers uh, Bennett uh, Purser and uh, Shalane Smith. I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1, 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1, 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1, 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1, 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1, 91.5 Logan.